Father, as always, we are so thankful together, together to look at your word and to be strengthened by it. And this morning, Father, as we come to this particular passage, which uh, in many ways is really for us, Lord, I pray that we are encouraged and we are strengthened. I pray that we're comforted. And Lord, I pray that we're challenged as well. We are challenged that we have all that we need when we have Christ and we have your word. You have given us such a precious gift, Lord. Through the Spirit, we have understanding. We are able to see you and know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would remind us of that from your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John 20. John 20, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29. John 20, 24 through 29. While you're turning there, so in Sunday school, the uh, last week and this week, we were looking at a prophecy in Isaiah 25, a prophecy looking forward to the, the feast of, of rich food and well-aged wine that we will have on the mountain of God uh, when he has swallowed up death and when, there's no, when, he was wiped, when he wipes the tears from every eye and when there's no reproach anymore and how we're looking forward to this beautiful feast and, and the final prophecy there in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 is basically that on that day people will say, Behold our God. And they will rejoice and they will celebrate. In other words, what we pointed out is that in the prophecy, what Isaiah is telling us that the Lord told him is that when that day finally happens, the response of the people who will be there will be celebration. In other words, it will be worth the wait. The prophecy includes that on that day, the people who are there will find it entirely worthwhile, the wait and everything that we went through. We're going to see a glimpse of that as well today because in this story with Thomas, it highlights the reality for you and I, a reality of what we don't get to have, what we, what we can't experience right now. And yet we are still waiting. So let's pick up in John 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We're going to take this in four parts today, and there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. But the first part today of this story we're going to look at, we call the skeptic. We're going to look at Thomas here. We start with Thomas. He's one of the 12. He's called the twin. We don't know where Thomas was last week. John doesn't tell us. But he wasn't there when Jesus showed up to the other disciples. 
So before we look at the conversation, though, let's go ahead and let's remember what John has told us about Thomas already. He's shown up a couple of times in John, and those stories, I think they do help us to understand him a little better here. So in chapter 11, verse 16, we see Jesus is planning to go to Lazarus, and he's having this conversation, and the disciples are concerned that he's going to be in danger from the Jewish leadership. And so we read in chapter 11, I'll start in verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Which is not the most upbeat and encouraging way to respond, I'm thinking. But, notice this, he is ready to go. He is willing to risk his life for Jesus here. So make sure that we see that. I mean, you can say this about Thomas. He does not lack for courage or loyalty to Jesus. I mean, Jesus says he's going. They're all pretty sure he's going to die. And so Thomas, he doesn't understand what's happening. He doesn't see the spiritual reality. He doesn't see what Jesus is doing. But say this for him. He was willing to go and die to follow Jesus. So he's, he is loyal, and I don't think you can question his courage. He's been teaching the disciples, and again, the disciples are not getting it. They're, they don't understand what he's saying. They, they don't understand where he's going. They don't understand what he's doing. And so we pick up here in chapter uh, 14 and verse 1. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Again, here's a troubling moment for the disciples. And Thomas, just from these two brief interactions we've had with him, he does seem to be pretty much a realist, doesn't he? And he asks a perfectly realistic question. Now, I mean, we're reading, and of course, it seems pretty clear to us that Jesus is talking about spiritual realities here. He's talking about the things of God and what he's planning to do. But Thomas takes it literally. Now, again, note it, though. Thomas doesn't say he won't go. He doesn't say he won't follow Jesus. He doesn't even disagree with Jesus. He doesn't argue with Jesus like Peter does. He just doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the spiritual side of what Jesus is saying. What are you talking about? We don't know where you're going. Tell us. Explain to us. Be real. So we read those two, and I'm just, I've got to say, I don't know that the nickname Doubting Thomas is really a fair way for Thomas to go down into history. Known only for his doubts. I mean, the man had courage, and he had loyalty. What we see here in chapter 20, it lines up with what we saw in 11 and in 14. He didn't get the spiritual side of what Jesus was teaching. And here, the idea that Jesus died and was resurrected, it was too much 
to believe. But keep in mind, the other disciples had to see Jesus first before they believed too. So I want to be generous here because it's easy for us over the centuries, Thomas has become known for one thing and doubting Thomas has become a phrase. But I think what you and I have to understand is if Thomas would doubt like this, you and I would too. I mean, Thomas wasn't lacking as a man or a follower of Christ. And Thomas is a great person for us to see and actually realize if we were in his place, would it be any easier for us on our own strength to just believe that a man that we knew had died a gruesome and terrible death was actually alive? Where was he? Why wasn't he here? So the disciples, the week before, they had seen him. And after they saw Jesus, of course they're going to tell Thomas about it. But then you see Thomas's response. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's not possible for me to believe this unless I see it. So the disciples, they give their witness to Christ. They testify to what they have seen of Christ, but it's not enough for Thomas. And I want you to see two sides to this problem here. On the one hand, again, who could believe that a man had come back from the dead? Keep in mind, you and I, and in, in our Western culture 2,000 years later, we've lived, the air that we have breathed has been marked by the story of Jesus. And for many of us who've grown up in church, we have grown up from being this tall when we could first hear celebrating Easter and having in our minds the idea that it is possible for a man to come back from the dead. Thomas didn't have that. Now, I mean, he, he did see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, so... Surely he should have thought something, but he didn't have what we have. An actual man come back, and, and that's important too, not a ghost, not a spirit. That's what Thomas is getting at. Is he really alive though? I have to touch him. I have to put my hands where he was wounded. Is it the same man? Does he still have the wounds? And so for Thomas, it's got to be real. And so there's a sense we can understand that, right? You, you, we should be able to put ourselves there and realize the challenge. But on the other side of it, I do think it's worth pointing out that there is a pretty compelling reason for Thomas to believe. One, is named Lazarus. But two, it is not like these were strangers telling him that Jesus was alive. Right? I mean, among this group here were men that he had lived with for years. Men who loved Jesus just as deeply as he did. Men who followed Jesus right along with him. It wasn't just like some random guy off the street was telling him, hey man, I saw Jesus back. These were his fellow disciples that he had shared life with, that he had followed Jesus. And I mean, really, would they be lying about something like this? Would they do that to another one of the disciples? 
and lie to him? I mean, when you think about it that way, it's kind of hard to imagine that Thomas would disagree with all of the disciples. But what we see is it wasn't enough. I think what you would say is Thomas couldn't believe. And when I, when, I, when I mean that, I mean he really couldn't believe. As important as this was, the disciples were not able to convince Thomas of what they had seen. I think that fits in to what we have already seen in John's gospel numerous times. Ultimately, it is Jesus himself who changes Thomas's mind. It is Jesus himself who calls his people. It is Jesus himself who opens the eyes and brings new life. And I think here as we're seeing this shift in history from the action of Jesus to the action and proclamation of the disciples, we see here in Thomas a reminder it is still only going to be Jesus himself who ultimately calls people and opens their eyes. Apart from Christ's work, we are all naturally going to be skeptics like Thomas here. And it's going to take more than just being convinced by others. No matter how close they are to us or no matter how close you, Christian, are to them, it is going to take more than just our convincing arguments, no matter how much we ought to believe them and no matter how much it ought to make sense. By nature, we are all like Thomas. The skeptic. But that brings us to the next part. The gracious Lord. So after a week, John tells us, after a week, they're all back in place again. John doesn't explain the timing. He doesn't, he doesn't explain why a whole week passed. But here they are again. The doors are locked again. And suddenly Jesus comes again. And he says the same thing again that he said last week. Peace be with you. Here, in other words, is a reaffirmation of what Jesus has done. And it seems like this is for Thomas's sake. Everything, the stage has been reset. And all the same things happen again now. For Thomas' sake. And then what does Jesus do? Immediately, he turns directly to Thomas. And he echoes exactly what Thomas had said to his fellow disciples. We read, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And this is a beautiful moment for several reasons. One, this is a moment that reminds us of Jesus' power. We're not told that the disciples said, hey, Lord, glad you're back. Hey, Thomas doesn't think you're re resurrected. Thomas said that he's not going to believe unless he touches you. We're not told that Thomas said, okay, I don't know who you are, but I'm not convinced that you're the Lord resurrected. No, Jesus came in. He said, peace be with you, and he turns to Thomas. John has told us before, he knows what's in man. He knows what's in Thomas. He sees Thomas more clearly than Thomas sees Thomas. 
The second thing that's beautiful about this is such an encouraging thing for us. Yes, the Lord is all-knowing, which is not flattering to us, by the way. It's really not flattering to Thomas either. The disciples all together have told Thomas what they know to be true, but he won't believe them. He won't believe them about Jesus, a man he followed and was so loyal to that he was willing to die for him, but he couldn't believe he was resurrected. And Jesus does not show up here and rebuke Thomas. Do you see that? He doesn't rebuke Thomas for his doubt. He doesn't rebuke Thomas for his demand for physical proof. Do you remember that word that we were using several months ago, quite a bit when we were going through John? It's a great old word. It's called condescension. And remember how when, when you and I, when we use that word to talk about others, it, it's a bad thing usually because we don't want to be seen as condescending, right? Looking down our nose at somebody as though we're better than they are. So usually when we say that somebody's being condescending, we mean they act like they're better than us, but we know they're not better than us. But the one person to whom the word condescending fits perfectly is Jesus Christ. He truly is better in every possible way, in every measurable metric. Jesus is objectively infinitely better than we are. And yet, even though he is better than us, and even though he is resurrected and he has shown his power, he is still willing to meet this disciple where he is. There's a lot of encouragement to see here from Jesus after the resurrection. Man, for what is this time that has started with the resurrection? I mean, this is the time of salvation. This is the time where Jesus calls his sheep into his flock. This is the time where he builds his church. And Jesus is bringing salvation. And make sure that you and I, we see his patience and we see his willingness here. And we reflect that in our own lives. There's a part of us that would want to go, but Thomas was wrong. He was hard-headed and he was being stubborn. But of course he was. That's the whole point. In our sin, we are all rebels against God. We're all enemies against him. We are all hard-hearted and stubborn when left to ourself. Thank God that salvation does not depend upon you and it doesn't depend upon you being reasonable. It doesn't depend upon you being logical. Thank God that his salvation depends upon Jesus coming and breaking into your life and meeting you where you are. We should not expect sinners Rebels against God who are unsaved by Christ to act any different than sinners who are rebels against God. And yet,
yet Jesus is willing to meet Thomas here. So make sure that you see that. As Jesus is bringing salvation, see his patience, see his willingness, reflect upon that in your own life. Through scripture, we've been given all that we need to tell others about Christ. You and I have the ability through scripture, through what he has done through us to introduce people to Jesus Christ and Jesus will work through his word and through his people. But make sure that you and I see that we are meant to meet people where they are. We, we can afford to be patient. Can't we? This kindness to Thomas, what does it do? It leads to this amazing testimony. And that's the third thing. So you have the skeptic, we have a gracious Lord, we have the testimony. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You know, it's interesting, but did you notice something here? Did Thomas actually do what Jesus said? John doesn't tell us that he did. We actually, we don't know. You might assume that he did, but, but he doesn't say so. John tells us that he simply answered what Jesus said. The impression here from John is that all that was really needed was Jesus' presence and his words. And Thomas didn't have any follow-up questions. No more follow-up questions this time. No more, Lord, I don't know what you're saying. He doesn't have anything that needs to be clarified. Apparently, just through the presence of Jesus and the words of Jesus spoken to him, that's enough. And Thomas can't stop himself. No questions here. Just a cry of faith. My Lord and my God. This is the power of Jesus at work in his disciple. And it's beautiful. Thomas doesn't have another argument. He goes from being absolutely unwilling to believe to crying out in faith. When Jesus calls... When he shows up in a person's life to save them, there is such a life-changing power in that action. Jesus is life everlasting. He is the bread of life. He is the word of God. And when he decides to save, when he decides to call his sheep, the same creative power that spoke the earth into being is what speaks to bring new life. That should give you and I so much confidence in our evangelism. We just speak the truth of Christ. We speak the words of the gospel. We proclaim Christ through our lives and through our testimony. What we say, we share, we proclaim. But the power that will save is not your power. It's not your logic. It's not your reason. It's not your winsomeness. It's not your personality. The power that ultimately will save is the power of Jesus Christ revealing himself to that person through the preached word, the proclaimed word. And it's the same power that brought everything 
from nothing. That should give you and I confidence. We, we don't worry about the results of our evangelism. God has got the results. He's gonna take care of that, and only he can. The disciples can't convince Thomas. Jesus just has to show up, and Thomas can't help but respond in faith. So what we have to understand is that our hope is in Jesus to save. Now that doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about knowing anything, obviously not. That doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about how you live your life, obviously not. We do those things to be faithful to God and we do those things because those are the means by which God has said he's going to work. Jesus is ascending. He sent Mary. He's sending the disciples. It's now the time of his followers to proclaim the gospel and how beautiful their feet are. But it's Jesus who saves. It's Jesus who saves. Take some comfort in that and risk this week talking about Jesus to somebody else and seeing what Jesus might do through you talking about him. We see this beautiful testimony, my Lord and my God. This is actually a really important moment in the Gospel of John. John is such a great writer, and so here, after the life of Christ on earth, and after his death on the cross, and after the resurrection, one of his disciples recognizes the truth that John began the gospel with. It's the question we've asked over and over again. Hang on a second. It's the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? At the beginning of the book, we had the one that John told us was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now, after everything that we have seen from Jesus in John's Gospel, we have followed him from the beginning. We followed him over into Samaria. We followed him back over into Israel. We followed him through Galilee. We followed him um, through into Jerusalem. We followed him through several feasts. We followed him through miracles. Uh, we followed him through persecution. We followed him through raising Lazarus from the dead. We followed him uh, through the, the triumphal entry. We followed him through the trials. We followed him through the cross. And after we have walked through John's gospel, now what we see is we see the answer to our question from somebody who lived it all. This is, this is actually really well written. John is putting us in there and saying, here is a man who lived through all of it. And let's sum up the answer for you finally. Who is this Jesus? Thomas tells you, my Lord and my God. Now he knows who he is. He didn't fully understand it, did he? They're going to Lazarus, and he's like, I don't know what's happening, but we're all going to die. But you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to go die. If he had known at that moment, truly, that Jesus was his Lord and his God, he might have had a different response in that moment. 
When Jesus says that he's going to his father so that he can make this house and, and there's a way that's prepared, Thomas doesn't know what he's talking about. Where is this way? What are you saying? But here, after the cross, after the resurrection, Jesus comes and you and I, we get the answer. My Lord and my God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Who is that? It's Jesus. We see it now. And not just that, but you remember how Jesus had always, throughout John's gospel, he had always united himself with the Father. In chapter 5, if you remember, he said that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And here, as we come to the very end of John's story of Jesus, what just happened? Thomas honored the Son just as you would honor the Father. My Lord and my God. Who is Jesus? The answer is clear and simple. My Lord and my God. Not just my rabbi. Not just my teacher. No, this is the ultimate answer. There is nothing greater for Thomas to say. My Lord my ruler, my authority over all, the one who commands my life. This is a declaration of Thomas's loyalty and submission to Jesus. My Lord, my God. This is really just another way of saying the same thing, but just making sure that you don't miss it. Not just any Lord. This is the Lord, my Lord and my God. Not Lord, lowercase. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the eternal creator. This is the word made flesh. This is the son of God. The son of the father. Don't settle for any lesser answer to the question, who is Jesus? Wherever you hear it, any doubts that are thrown out about who Jesus was, don't settle for anything less. The Bible is perfectly clear on who Jesus is. And Christian, what should you and I say with Thomas? We should say nothing, nothing less than, my Lord and my God. And what a kind and gracious God he is that he would meet you where you are, that he would know you intimately. He would know everything that's in you. And yet, he would come and offer you forgiveness and love and compassion. He is absolutely deserving of our cry my Lord and my God. Like when Mary heard Jesus call her name outside the tomb, you know there had to have been symbolism there. When Jesus says her name and then she recognizes him. When Jesus speaks to Thomas now, he knows who is in front of him and it changes everything for him. That's what happens when you meet Jesus truly. It changes everything for you.
You don't walk away from that meeting with Jesus the same. But of course, now we come to it. What's the problem? We don't get to see Jesus the way Thomas got to see Jesus. And what do we do with that? And that brings us to our final point this morning, the challenge. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed and yet have believed. So there might be a rebuke in this statement for Thomas. There might be. But if so, it's a gentle one. Make sure you see that. What is this really pointing to? What happened with Thomas makes sense. Have you believed because you've seen me? Well, that's kind of logical, isn't it? I mean, I could tell you guys all about this great, awesome new dog that I got. He's this rare breed, just came out. He has six legs. He's got two front, two here, and then he's got two that come out of his ribs. But those legs can actually become wings, and he can also fly. He's amazing. He lives off of air. It's the coolest thing. I don't need a litter box or nothing. He's amazing, right? Sounds great. What do you, I mean, you're not going to believe a word I just said. But man, what if he came through that door right now? Then you'd have no choice, right? There he is. We understand the idea that if we could see what you're talking about, we would believe it. That's logical. And Thomas is a realistic man. And so he's not going to deny what is right in front of his face, what he can touch and what he can hear and what he can see. But the problem is that even though Jesus is here in front of Thomas right now, there were witnesses to his resurrection. There were witnesses that saw him in the flesh. He's not going to remain. He's ascending to the Father. This is the time when the Holy Spirit's going to be active on the earth and people are going to meet Jesus through the proclamation of his followers and through their faithfulness and through the testimony of their lives. So in a short time, people are going to meet Jesus through the witness of Thomas himself and the other disciples. And Jesus is anticipating it here in verse 29. And he's giving encouragement about it. Because what Jesus says here is something that the disciples are going to carry on with them. Just because those who come after this, including us in this room this morning, 2,000 plus years later, we don't get to see Jesus in person. Just because of that, it doesn't mean that our faith is any less confident. It doesn't mean that our joy is any less sure. You know, Peter is going to make this point beautifully. Peter carries this on as well in his ministry. And of course, Peter goes on to testify beautifully about who Christ is. And through the preaching of Peter, thousands are saved by Christ, not by Peter, but they're saved by Christ. You remember what Peter said? He didn't say, I forgive you. He said, repent and be forgiven by Christ. And so we see Peter many years later, he's writing to the church and he's writing to many people who never met Jesus. They never saw him either before or after the resurrection. And what does Peter say to them in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9? He says, 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There really is something precious about our faith in Jesus through the testimony of Scripture. Jewish thinkers understood this as well, even those who did not believe in Jesus. One rabbi wrote, the proselyte is dearer to God than all the Israelites who stood by Mount Sinai. For if all the Israelites had not seen the thunder and the flames and the lightning and the quaking mountain and the sound of the trumpet, they would not have accepted the law and taken upon themselves the kingdom of God. Yet this man has seen none of those things, yet comes and gives himself to God and takes on himself the yoke of the kingdom of God. Is there, is, is there any who is dearer than this man? So we believe not because we have seen Jesus with our own eyes and put our hands in his wounds, but because of the majestic beauty displayed in Scripture and through the faithful witnesses to Christ. Because we have seen the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at work through his word and through other believers and through their testimony. And it's precious there's a blessing to believing without having seen Jesus. But let's be clear, we're not going to pat ourselves on the back for believing when others hear the same message and others read the same scripture and others see, see the same power in believer's life and yet they continue to say with Thomas, I will never believe. I'm sure if you've lived long enough, you know people who are like that who have heard the same sermons, read the same scripture, seen the same people, and yet they still say, I will never believe. Don't pat yourself on the back, because you do. Instead, understand that in our story today, Jesus chose to come to Thomas in the flesh and open his eyes, and Thomas could not refuse the command that was given to him. It was a command that was given to him, wasn't it? And I don't mean the command, put your finger here. I mean the other command. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And now today, that same Lord, the exact same Lord, he cannot be refused. He chooses to come to his sheep through preaching, through evangelism, through faithfulness of his children, through the testimony of their faithfulness in their lives to Christ, through the testimony of Scripture in their mouths. And when anybody hears that call from Jesus, it is his power at work to bring new life. So don't patch your back that you believe in Jesus. Instead, thank God that he was willing to condescend, that he was willing to meet you where you are and meet you when you are who you are. 
and love you and reveal himself to you and call you by name like a shepherd calling out his sheep, be thankful that Jesus came to you. Fall on your knees and give the response that Thomas gives, my Lord and my God. And then take that message with you. Because through you, telling others about Christ, who he is, what he has done, through God's words from Scripture coming out of your mouth, Jesus may come to another wretched sinner and meet them where they are and open their eyes and they might go from saying, I would never believe to saying, my Lord and my God. It is supernatural. It is the power of God. You and I are stewards of that. Or perhaps you're here and you are fighting against Scripture and against what you see here. Perhaps you're fighting against the idea that Jesus is truly who he says he is, that he is God himself, that you, no matter what you think, you were made by him and you were made for him and you need him desperately. Are you refusing Jesus my prayer is that through John's gospel and through the Christians you see around you that are living imperfectly, yes, are failing, yes, but who are coming to Christ and relying on him and striving to live for him and who are proclaiming that they are living for Christ, I pray that you would hear Jesus' call and you would respond here. Don't disbelieve. Believe in Jesus and find what you were made for. The peace that comes from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would, through John's gospel, the beauty of Jesus, our Lord, on display. Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself known to those that do not know you, those that do not trust you, those that do not follow you. Lord, I pray that you would through the faithfulness of your people and your word. This is your design. You have promised to work through your word. I pray that you would come and you would break into hearts that are denying you. And you would bring new life. You would bring joy and hope. You would bring that peace that passes all understanding, a peace that's not tied to our circumstances here on earth, but that's tied to a relationship with you that extends beyond this life into all eternity. 
that's tied directly to the promises that you made through Isaiah, that there is coming a day when the griefs of this world and the trials of this world are going to pass away, and they won't just pass away, but you say that you will wipe away our tears. That even now as you watch us, even now as you see us in this life, you are prepared, as Peter said, you are prepared to restore us and to strengthen us, to confirm us. And so, Father, I pray that you would meet people in their sin. I pray that we would be willing to be your hands and your feet and your voice to meet people in their sin, to proclaim Christ, and that you would work through that, and that those who disbelieve would realize the hopelessness of that disbelief and the futility of it, and they would believe. Would you work in that way, Father? In Christ's name, amen.